just do it and be legends. Legends. I'm starting it with that, by the way. Please. Are you already recording? I'm recording. Okay. <laughs> We're calling this episode the Let's Just Do It and Be Legends Man episode. Yeah. We're reunited <laughs> and it feels so good. We are reunited. We are HD and I are finally back from our busy lives. Yes. Um and as do you we might, explain do we have to introduce ourselves? I'm like, as you might be able to hear, this episode is a little different than it normally is. Um so hey, it's Anya, a writer for Gay Star News. And uh, as always, I'm well not always, but this week I'm joined by my co hosts. I'm Hui Chen Bui, a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in New York, this time recording from D.C., my old haunts. You home. My home. And I'm Willoughby Dobbs, filmmaker in the D.C. area. Uh, so y- if you can't tell, we're breaking format. Um, we had some complicating issues on Friday night recording an episode with Anya's girlfriend, who lives in Japan, who can only record on the weekends at certain times because of the Japanese time zone. And Anya lives in California, and we live in on the East Coast, which means that we were recording... It's all very complicated, which has nothing like, to you know do that, with the technical... Huh? You, know you know that scene in Star Trek when Simon Pegg is telling Chris Pine that to beam you across space and time on a moving platform is like, like shooting a gun at, like, at, like, uh, or, you know, like, doing this very complicated thing to do a very tiny thing. And that's kind of like that. But also, apparently, HT's laptop died, and we lost the recording. Yeah, yeah so, like, uh, the time zones have very nothing sorry. to do. No, it's not your fault. It was, we were having technical difficulties, and uh, we're rescheduling that episode in particular uh, for next week. So uh, listen to our amazing episode on Pokemon next week. Uh, but so this week we decided to instead of like coming up with like another topic and like having our professional uh, high grade quality content discussion that we normally have every week, instead we're just gonna chat with you guys for the soldiers. <laughs> right. It Happy really Memorial wants Day. To tie this into Memorial Day, and I don't know why. I don't know. I just I the the journalist in me wants me wants this to be tied in some way to, to be like, the news cycle and i don't really know how to do it um yeah no this is a consider this my failed attempt at tying it into the weekend <laughs> it's a holiday we're having fun and we're well, shooting well. the shit yeah Damn we, right we are we, tried it. We, we spend about 10 or so minutes before actually recording just sort of like asking how we're doing and like start and we sometimes we get into conversations we're like oh this would be really good on the podcast and then we don't talk about it because it's like yeah because it's because, like, I don't know, just the way the, the podcast flows. So what we're going to do is we're just going to record and see what happens. So, guys, I need to, like, say something. Sure. Yeah. Last weekend, last Sunday, right, I graduated. Uh-huh. You did. Congratulations. Thank you. However, that's not what I was, like, I'm telling you, like, last Sunday was, like, a big day for me, right? Yes. Right. You're a journalism master now. I am. I'm a journalism master. I'm going to catch them all. Master catch all journalists. You have to you catch, catch, catch them all. <laughs> um HTO be my first. She's a starter journalist um in the entertainment beat. <laughs> um but anyway, so I graduated last Sunday, right? But it wasn't like that wasn't the high point of my day. <gasps> what was the high point of your day? Game of Thrones ending and everyone hating it. <laughs> 
guys, oh I'm so God. happy. Guys, I'm so happy this show. We're like finally out of this hellhole. Everyone hated the last season. Everyone was talking about how bad of writers D&D are. And I was like, wow, they've been this way since day one. But I'm glad you're finally realizing it now. But like... God, like I feel so vindicated. No, honestly, I felt I felt bad because of all the people who do love this show and were like very invested in, it, and especially invested in, in Danny's character, despite you know her flaws not being well written in the show because they really yeah, wanted to just lean into the big TV moments and try to be try to boost her up as the hero too much. Um, what I was trying to say is I got a perverse sort of joy from watching the disappointment with this season of Game of Thrones because I'm like, ha, I was right all along and you were wrong and I feel validated like you, Anya. Although I'm very happy that my girl Sansa got what she deserved and she's queen in the north and she deserves the world. I love her and... That's the only thing that matters. Yes. Although I was watching some... I I was watching the clip of her being crowned queen of the north recently on YouTube and of course the comments were just riddled with all the man pain and the babies who are like, Sansa is a manipulative bitch i'm like wow were you just not watching the show at all did you just not pay attention to anything that happened and they're like oh, she's the one who like sent john to the north it's her fault that danny died like, no 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 okay. no 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 danny died because she had terrible writers and she was a white savior who went mad and again like that's the, that's the problem with the whole danny thing i was like the problem is not that Danny became a mad queen because, like, that had been foreshadowed. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that foreshadowing is not development. Like, yes. D&D foreshadowed her becoming the mad queen, but never actually, like, developed that through their writing over, like, seven seasons. Yeah. They, like, they had her be like, I'll take with mine with fire and blood. And they were like, oh, that's enough. Like, yeah. that's just the show for becoming a mad queen. was too enamored with Danny as, like, the feminist face of their TV series and the the central character to all like the cool big tv moments that they had throughout the show that they forgot that she was actually meant to be the villain and like obviously D knew this because they knew the broad strokes of what george r, r. martin wanted to have as the ending but they were just uh too caught up in what the show became versus what it was meant to be and like honestly if they had gone into a different direction like went more into what the characters that they were building towards like you know were would end up as like in terms of like what the show was versus what they wanted the show to be then i would have respected that more but because you know they're not good writers they're not they're then really i not. i very little sympathy for them but i do feel bad for the people they, who like danny because of how she was presented in the show because they were misled they, have they were misled. The, they have the same capacity for writing that Jon snow has capacity for um battle planning <laughs> real I'm which could charge be in here with my one sword on foot. yeah and and then like decide what to do afterwards um i watched the finale after you know we sort of a couple episodes ago we were talking about why we didn't watch game of thrones anymore and the, the monoculture got to me so i i've actually watched it the battle i watched every episode of the from the battle of winterfell on because like they hyped up the battle for winterfell like so much that I was like, I gotta see what this shit's about. And then I was like, I guess I'm gonna watch the rest of it because it's like the final season, it's the monoculture, it's all that. And like, every like, literally everyone in my office is talking about it. So I'm like, like I don't know what to do. So I just watched it. Um, I watched it on my laptop. I didn't give it the satisfaction of big screen except for the finale because I was like, I want to see what's going on here. Um, it's real bad. 
uh, Danny has big George W. Bush energy in uh, the beginning of the finale where she's like, we're going to liberate the rest of the world. And I'm like, ooh, that's not a good word. Liberate. Ooh, boy. Uh, um, yeah, I thought it was poorly done. Like, I saw the intention of what they were trying to do. Like, if they were building up Danny to be the villain, they should have started seasons ago with, like, her. Like, I mean, I'm sure, like... I'm sure, like, what they had intent and planned at first when they didn't know the ending was obviously different because, like, it's, you know, it's clear that they were, like, these are powerful moments for Danny to be, like, the savior of whatever town she's liberating. But then at the same time, you have a dragon that's basically just, like, burning everyone. And, like, that final scene, was it, in Korth or Karth, where, like, it's her in the foreground and she's like Dracarys and Drogon just goes and burns everybody behind her. I like, was that like, I know that was supposed to be like a very powerful moment where she's like exerting her power for the first time. Um, but also, uh, like in turn, like that's basically what she did to King's landing on like a much bigger scale, but where they, where they went and how they got to that point was so, um, half-assed to the point where like they're like point a and point b if those are points a and point b or point c i guess b is her trying to be a hero and then like the writers failing miserably to do the turn to make her mad queen or whatever and like if it had been done better maybe there were some women on the writing staff or like two and not even since like season four yeah um so you just have these men who are writing a, a very complicated female character who they want to become a villain or who George R.R. R. Martin has expressed is the villain in the, in the, in the finale of, of his books. Uh, presumably we may never know. Um, and they, they just didn't write that turn well because all it was all on Amelia Clark to do the turn on her facial expressions while she's hearing the bells. These probably, you know, not on set ringing bells with a not on set King's Landing. It was all CGI. She's probably on the back of some green, like, log. And, you know, credit to her for trying to give the... Yeah, I mean, Amelia audience, Clark is you know, not like, a good actress, but she tried. Yeah, I she, feel like she, she actually delivered in that one scene that she had in which yeah. she had to do the turn. She, yeah. had to do, she had to do a lot of heavy lifting because of the writing terrible script yeah um and i think well i was gonna say like the problem as well is like so like this writing has been bad and everything and like so like there's we can knock it for like just like objective like writing failures the other problem is that with characters like danny and stuff is that they are steeped in so much misogyny from the writers themselves and so it's, like, not only do the writers not know how to, like, show development or, like, character growth or, like, you know, character arcs well, is that they try and justify character arcs in this show, especially with their female characters, through misogyny. And this is one part where I do also sort of, like, blame the audience in that, like, I feel like the audience's own misogyny started to rear its head um, when the show came out. Like, people immediately latched on to characters like Danny and Arya um, and hated characters like Sansa or Cersei. And 
that is a big issue to me because like that is seeped in so much like misogyny or like internalized misogyny um and the idea of like what an acceptable female character is and so like since Arya is the one with the sword and Sansa is the one with the needle (laughs) but not needle the sword (laughs) um therefore Arya is like intrinsically better and Sansa is like because she she's the one who uh contains masculine elements of being like physically strong and of being wily and everything um but when Sansa shows that cunning she's manipulative she's a bitch right and I hate exactly that. I it I hate it so much because like the whole point of Sansa is that she learns from people like Cersei and Littlefinger mm-hmm. while maintaining like the honor and the resilience and, like and the, the compassion. compassion of her parents mm-hmm. and like the world and who she really is like just who Sansa is as a person and that's the whole point of her is like that's why she's like that's why she's like the true feminist hero of Game of Thrones yes. I would argue and like has been since day one um, but then again, also, like, characters like Cersei and Danny, who are raped in the show, but not raped in the books, and they become, like, mad, and, like, but the, also the idea that, like, ugh, like, in this season, when Sansa's talking with the Hound, and she's, like, she literally says to him that, like, her, like, rape and torture by Ramsay is, like, what made her who she is today, and I was, like, no, like, that is such... So- I have some insight from about the Cersei rape scene in particular um, okay. from uh, my editor at Slash Film who talked who talked to the sound designer for Game of Thrones and he had in the interview he spoke about how the um, the that aforementioned rape scene between uh, Jamie and Cersei uh, they actually added the sound effects to make it sound more like rape and the sound designer didn't know why this was the case like he was just told to do this by you know the showrunners and he's still baffled as to why that was it played out like that and I just I'm don't know because like I remember after in the aftermath of that episode they the showrunners and the writers were denying that it was rape because they're like oh you know it's not sexual assault and stuff even though it was explicitly filmed in that way and then that, as we learned just now like the sound effects were added that made it sound like rape so yikes i big yikes yeah, this show horrifying great and uh yeah that is can't horrifying. wait for their three picture star wars deal <sighs> <sighs> speaking Boy. of that three picture star wars deal um uh, we didn't want to do a whole episode about this, but um, I wanted to ask Willoughby's um, uh, opinions about the Knights of the Old Republic rumor uh, movie. And this movie may be the one that D&D are connected to. I pray to God that it's a separate development deal um, because uh, I don't want them adapting Star Wars at all. And I definitely don't want them adapting Knights of the Old Republic, which is uh, a great franchise of games of two um although the second one is not as good as the first one the first one is like critically acclaimed everybody loves it um i do too um i watched i played it for the first time back uh, about eight years ago um during the summer between freshman and sophomore year with my best friend and it's so a great story and it's so you know it's intrinsically star wars but also like 
you go a lot of planet hopping that's like you haven't seen before it takes place four thousand years before anakin skywalker it's it's wholly own own universe or timeline i guess within the star wars universe where like there's a lot of familiar beats and, and you know planets and weapons and lightsabers and like everything you know from star wars just transplanted four thousand years ago and a lot of i think the rumor that they're doing the the Knights of the Old Republic movie comes into play because they just got off of doing a medieval type show. So like they're like, oh, back in the past sort of deal. But I don't want them touching Star Wars because of basically everything, all their criticisms about what we've had on the show. I know that HBO, you know, HBO is a rated R, you know, channel, so they can do a lot of stuff that uh, Star Wars will never do. Um but at the same time, like their writing isn't good. Like their their characterization is not good. The just the basic fundamental elements of writing, they don't succeed at. And I don't want them. Like if I don't know what they're. Uh, I know they're supposed to be directing. Or Actually, we're like, not sure if they're directing yet. Um, so so like, the one silver lining I could find from this is that they are good at gathering talent. So if they're just working on these Star Wars movies from like a producing level and they get people who are actually good at their jobs at writing, at, at uh, um, directing, at, you know, the cast and the design and everything. That's, like, one of the few, like, great elements of Game of Thrones is everything but D&D. Right. That's the thing. is like, if they're writing and directing the, these movies, I'm not going to be a fan of that, probably. Like, just, you know, historically speaking. But if they are just shepherding these films along, that I could probably take it um the thing is like there is a story group and kathleen kennedy is in charge of lucasfilm and historically speaking she's been making good choices um and the story group does a really good job of like making sure that the story doesn't stray too far which is why i think it's insane that people think that ryan johnson ruined star wars because he didn't um and i mean uh, kathleen kennedy has shown that like she is willing to like make hard decisions like cutting out Lord and Miller from Solo. Like, Kathleen Kennedy has been has been shown that she's been willing to, like, put the franchise above, like, optics or whatever. Like, that's this is why, like, I trust Kathleen Kennedy so much. Like, as much as I hate D&D, like, I have to, like, I my faith in Kathleen Kennedy is greater than my dislike of them because, right. like, she brought this franchise back from the prequels and has shown to be an extremely capable... Um, and intelligent and just like very aware kind of leader. I just guys, I can't say enough about Kathleen Kennedy. I love her so yeah. much. And again, this sort of goes back, but like, remember when she fired Lord and Miller and everyone was like, oh my God, like what a bitch. And I was like, oh wow, like a woman in power, like making decisions and like saying that these white men aren't doing a good enough job and she's a bitch. Cool. That's great. But at the, oh, this is the weird thing. Like I'm not, like I'm not on that side at all. Like I'm on totally on your side. Uh, remember when Josh Trank was fired and Colin Trevorrow was fired? Those were directors that people didn't like already. Yeah. And people liked Lord Miller. So the moment that Kathleen Kennedy said to uh, that she fired directors that people liked, that's when the turn happened. Mm. That's when people were like saying those things. Whereas before, people were like, okay, Josh Trank he sounds like a terrible person like or like you know like he doesn't sound like he's good at his job uh, as being like a, a professional on set um and also 
Colin Trevorrow made the Book of Henry. Um, <laughs> and that was basically the final straw. And also I heard, you know, like, I think, th I think they were like in their official statements, they were like creative differences, which is like the most, you know, probably true, but also like the smoothest way of saying that we've parted ways. Um, and, and, but, it, but that definitely happened after the book of Henry was, was released, yeah. which is just fundamentally hilarious to me. So like she, she, and people had problems with Colin Trevorrow beforehand with Jurassic World and Safety Not Guaranteed, and Josh Trank made uh, a terrible Fantastic Four film, and but he did make Chronicle. Like like that's the thing is Josh Trank and Colin Trevorrow had these have had very similar tracks where they made a very good, critically acclaimed uh, um, indie with Chronicle and Safety Not Guaranteed, and then they made uh, um, two big. Uh, franchise i mean obviously fantastic four was a flop but it was critically reviled but uh then jurassic world was a, was box office gold but also like kind of critically reviled at least like by mixed the reception i mixed reception I like the, the critics were mixed but i think everyone who i've seen who like real people like citizens of the of film twitter and not the critics were like this is awful um and then, and then, so both of them were fired off of their Star Wars films. Uh, and then, uh, when it, Lord Miller, the same thing happened. Where although they had more success in the past with a lot of with animated films and live features, the when they were out of the wheelhouse for you know, or out of what, whatever Kathleen Kennedy wanted, she fired them. And that one, because they were liked directors, people were like, "What is this deal?" Even though she's done that twice before. Um, and also, I've heard that Gareth uh, Edwards didn't have full control over the final cut of Rogue One, and just like a lot of things that happen, things happen. It just like, makes me like so... movies get taken away. Yeah. Movies get taken I think away it's from a their directors because like Star Wars is now such a public franchise too, and I feel like the reporting around franchises has just become much more intense so we know of more that's happening with like behind the scenes and yeah. like who gets dropped and who gets picked up than we did before um i don't know if like that's uh, yeah exactly, but that's in my experience anyways i mean i think i think you're right somewhat like i just feel like the world in general like with like social media and like just the way people are reporting on entertainment now i feel like we do know so much more than we used to like there are like people are interested in reading hollywood reporter like writing up reports on like why a director was cut or like, you know, in like decades ago, that might not have been interesting to people, but like we have become invested in that kind of story. But I think because for me, we all, like, we all uphold prop, uh, IPs and franchises more yep. than we do independent and mid budget films, but that's a rant for a exactly. whole other podcast. But, but like, I actually, I remember when Lord Miller got fired and I actually wrote an article about this because I supported Kathleen Kennedy's decision to fire them. Um, and I said that, like, of course, like, we do all want, like, the mid-budget, like, independent films, like you said, but, like, those, those ones exist outside of a franchise and an IP, and it's good, and, but we should be able to have both, and I just feel like if you are in the world of a franchise, like, you have to play by the rules of the franchise, or else the franchise falls apart. Like, the whole reason that, like, things like the MCU and stuff have existed is because, or have, like, successfully existed is because Kevin Feige has maintained like leadership over it from the beginning and has said like oh like this fits in the MCU or this doesn't like you know Ava DuVernay being like mm, I'm not going to direct Black Panther because we have different visions and like that's 
okay. You can respect both director and studio for being like, our visions don't match up. Like the MCU would be a mess if they just let directors have. You know what's really funny to me um, is that the reporting on like behind the scenes bickering and creative differences and franchises has become our new version of tabloid fodder it's yeah. kind of like what you see in magazines like people and you see all like the celebrity gossip but now it's become properties and ips and i think that's really funny yeah. it's kind of like the, the I, masculine version of it or not even the masculine just like the, the mainstream version it's the really modern funny. day yeah the modern version. i steer away from those articles when i when i like read uh like when i see a headline that's like you know like director squabbles on set with producers i'm just like Okay, like I, I like I don't know. It doesn't interest me, un- until I guess it's a property that I'm invested in. Um, but at the same time, like I want to I want to see the final product before making a judgment call on whether or not that those mattered, uh, like those stories mattered to the final product. Because like obviously we've had movies, for example, like Josh Trank's Fantastic Four, where there are rumors of a cut that's purely from Josh Trank's vision and it's supposed to be better than the, like the edited version that the studios wanted. So like, there's always these stories between the, what the directors want and what the producers want. Um, and like what the studios want. And that is always, I think it's always interesting in hindsight, but like, it's always like, I would, I, I usually try to wait for, to read all about that after I've seen what the movies have done. Um, there's a whole piece that could be written about how our idea of celebrity has now moved from actual people and actual movie stars onto franchises themselves. And it's yeah. like the corporatization of movie stardom is really funny to me and kind of scary, movies, but, you know, it's... Movie stars are now IP. Mm-hmm. Like, a movie starring Tom Cruise that's about him uh, looping in a time loop with Emily Blunt and amazing visuals and a really fun story can't make the money that it could have made in 1995 when Tom Cruise was the movie star of the decade. Yeah. Um, and like movie stars were sold just on his face on, as the poster, like Vanilla Sky. Um, like that, it, it's definitely just such a different universe now we live in, in in film where a movie starring a bona fide star can't make money unless he's tied to a Mission Impossible film or a Jack Reacher film. Like, like Tom Cruise has had to evolve from being Tom Cruise, the movie to- star, to Tom Cruise in charge of IP. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, because like Tom Hanks' like... movies don't get uh, major. Like, like the they've made like four Da Vinci Code movies, and yet like none of them make money, even though it stars Tom Hanks. I think yeah, it's, like, I think it's, it's embodied really in um in a movie like Solo, which is headlined mm-hmm. by an unknown, and yet is basically the the draw is Han Solo, who in in of itself like is a fictional character, but is like the box office star in this regard, the main movie draw, and I think that's just like really fascinating, a little bit. The sad, I guess you would say. I don't know. We'll see where the future of movie movies are going. The landscape is changing always. Um, but then we have, like, Booksmart came out this weekend, yes. and it's amazing, but it doesn't get marketed properly because it's not a big budget IP. It's like a small little indie directed by Olivia Wilde and stars, like, two relative... I'm like, Beanie Feldstein is known and Billy Lord is known 
um, but they're not major stars. Like they're not like headlining movies yet. Um, but I think it's fascinating that like you know it should be a, a box office smash hit because it's well received. Yeah. Like received so well. Anyways, this is a PSA to go see Booksmart. Ani and I are going yeah. to go see it today. Um, right after I'm podcast. Next week. I'm so excited. I'm really excited. I it got such raves out of South by, and um, it's sadly not getting a lot of box office. Um, you know, momentum. It only debuted, I think, to like eight million this weekend. I'm trying to like do my part in boosting the box office, but yeah, on- you will only get more uh, diversity and variety in your films if you go and support your local or indie or mid-budget films. So go see Booksmart. Yes. Go see The Souvenir. Go see John Wick Chapter Three again. Yes, <laughs> do it. Which has already outgrossed its entire Chapter 2 run. Yeah. Um, In just 10 days. I have such, like, the John Wick franchise is such a nice surprise to me. Because it started off as the scrappy little action thriller uh, starring Keanu Reeves that honestly seemed like it was destined for the direct-to-DVD bin. But now it's become, like, this huge franchise. Um, and it's become, like, its own cinematic universe. I love that. Even though I have, like, you know, my own problems with the ideas of cinematic universes. But the idea that this it can start from, like, this tiny little movie that no one really expected to do well, but had Keanu Reeves, and has now kind of become its own sort of pop culture phenomenon. Like, it's an R-rated movie, a hard R movie, that is doing, a, like, unseated Avengers Endgame from number one last weekend. That's amazing. Yep. It is amazing. Um, I think I think it's I think it's neat. I think uh, and for more on John Wick Chapter Three, and John Wick as a movie franchise, listen to our previous episode, uh, Big Wick Energy. Yes, I also want to give <laughs> a shout out to Mike Sillingle who uh, was very upset that he wasn't on the John Wick um, podcast last week because he's the one who introduced both me and Willoughby to the first film. And, uh, introduced is a loose term for me because he just kept tweeting about it and I was I sort of gave in to his tweets not at me just tweeting about it yeah. I'm like okay I'll, I'll hype, figure out what his this hype is what about. drove us all to watch it honestly and uh, he was right he is the one and I just want to say Mike if you're listening I'm sorry if you felt like you weren't shouted out enough in the last po- episode you were I said I gave you your name and uh, yes, you should have been on the podcast. <laughs> Credit was given. Credit has been given. And when I was talking about the best action uh, uh, franchise, poss- like it being possibly the best action franchise, yes, I was ignoring and forgetting East Asian series, but I was primarily referring to American and Western franchises. And I just want to um, you definitely clarify that. that. Yes. You definitely talked about, you were talking about like, Hollywood and like westernized like yes. franchises. You you made that clear. Anyways, Mike um, might have might have chewed me out about this in real life. I just want to clarify all of these things. Um, this is the HT Defense Squad. We will not have anyone slandering her name or chewing her out. Thank you. You're, You're president and treasurer of the HT fan club. Uh, hell yeah, we are. Yeah. Wait, who's VP? Why are you just treasurer? Wait, I don't want to be treasurer. I don't want to deal with money. Do we we want to be co-presidents? Yeah, let's be co-president of the HD fan club and defense squad. And I'm also president and co-president of the Anya and Willoughby defense squad. So yes, yes. Um, we support each other here. Yes. Um, In this house, we love and support each other. Yes. 
So speaking of movies that are really good and that like are part of like a larger cultural discussion, like with John Wick, like like I love you saying HT that you're like it was destined for the bargain bin, but like has actually become it was right, yeah. Um, and so speaking of like movies that just kind of have a larger than life presence and stuff, I need to just say real quick that this weekend you guys should go see Rocket Man. Oh, I need to see. It's gotten so it's, many good reviews out of um, Can. Yeah, I so I saw an early screening of it, and it is so good. And I love it half because it murdered Bohemian Rhapsody, because fuck that movie. And I also love it because it's just a really great film. Like, Rocket Man is so good, guys. It's like a bizarre musical fantasy trip that is full of compassion and love for its subject and the acting is so good Taryn Edgerton and Jamie Bell ugh, guys guys if Taryn Edgerton doesn't get an Oscar nomination and Rami Malek like won his I I think we need to just cancel the Oscars okay I will say and also movies as one of the few like Rami Malek fans from back in his Mr. Robot days he's not terrible in he's not he's not he's he's not terrible he's fine but his fake teeth do the majority of the performance right exactly he's not terrible remember that his his oscar broad broadcast clip of when they were showing the different actors doing their thing that they submit to the oscars to be like shown why they should win was a clip of him lip syncing to uh freddie mercury who is not in the film uh like obviously and that's i think that says a lot about why you know how like good he was in the film because they didn't have a clip of him just talking i thought you were saying that freddie mercury wasn't in the film because they didn't do justice to freddie mercury and i was like damn you right i was about to say it too I was oh like, Dang, i mean that, mercury, i guess that could, like i haven't honestly, seen bohemian rhapsody so i actually can't make a judgment freddie about mercury that, isn't i'm not in bohemian going rhapsody? to directed by not a great person. there's just hmm? he well he's not freddie mercury isn't in bohemian rhapsody there's just like a like Sanitized. Let's make this sanitized palatable for like mass America. So like let's downplay the fact that he's an immigrant and the fact that he's bisexual. You know, um, um so when Bohemian Rhapsody was released in China, they only released it on the pretense of like cutting out all the gay content. Mm-hmm. And you know what that amounts to? Two minutes. Two minutes uh, of gay content. Now, so now, meanwhile on, Rocket Man. Uh, Rocket that Man in China. Can huh? it be cut? Can they if Rocket Man is released in China, can they only cut two minutes out, or is it oh, going to be God, a much no. harder problem to edit it? Oh no, it's going to be a much harder problem because Rocket Man is the first studio film released for mass audiences, like with a wide release, that has a male sex scene, like a same-sex oh. male sex scene, and it's done beautifully. Elton John has said that, like that's really how it happened. So it's 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 when Elton John lost his virginity. Um, which is a social construct, by the way. Um, <laughs> but no, the movie, there have been inter- some interesting reviews about how, like, El- like Rocket Man is still not gay enough. And, like, I get where people are coming from, but I also look at this film and see the fact that, like, they were able, they were, they were willing to have this sex scene to show a scene where a man is, like, getting a blowjob from another man, where they are able to, where Elton is able to, like, discuss his sexuality and how it might affect his career and his life and whether or not he's going to lose the people in his life by coming out. Like, it is 
a very important through line and discussion in the film. And also to your point about Rami Malek, Willoughby, Taron Edgerton sings in this movie. Yeah, he's a good singer. He's They've released a, a couple clips of him actually singing. He and is like singing wonderful. with Elton John. Yeah, and he like he like he sounds like Elton John, but he doesn't sound like he's doing an impression. Mm. He sounds like he is like embodying Elton John, so it's like mm. a little bit uncanny because like it's obviously not Elton, and you can tell, but it also does sound a lot like him. It just Darren Edgerton gives a wonderful performance and. I'm just so happy that this movie is good and that we are getting justice for like a gay icon. And I'm so glad. Wondering about that um, fact that you pointed out about um, Rocketman having the first gay sex scene in a major motion picture for white honest. I, I do think that like you're, you're probably correct. Um, so I guess that doesn't count movies like Brokeback Mountain. So Brokeback Mountain was released by Focus Features. Mm. So it's the first, so Rocketman is the first like studio film. So it's not oh, by I one see. of like the studios, like smaller, like art house. So like Call Me By Your Name was Sony Pictures Classic, not Sony. Oh, I see. I see. And so that's, I know it's like, it's so, it, it's kind of dumb because you have to like make all these qualifications to say like, it's the first movie in history to do this, but you have to be like, okay, but like Brokeback Mountain and Call Me By Your Name don't count for these reasons. But the, the, the reason is that Rocketman is the first one released solely under like the big studio banner intended for like mass audiences, whereas like Brokeback Mountain and Call Me By Your Name were, did definitely start out as more of like the art house, like Oscar fair drama films whereas rocket man is supposed to be like the big crowd pleaser mm, i see i see and that's that's the reason why like you say like it's the first like mass studio movie to do this um because it was just released under paramount all right well i'm excited to see it speaking so speaking of things i'm excited about guys i just finished all two seasons of fleabag which is so, so good. And yes, I watched it for the thirst. Um, but so it is predictable. So, like, I'm, like, of course I'm really you did. predictable, guys. I'm really sorry. I thought I'd gotten over it, but I'm not. I just, I watch a lot of shows all. for the thirst and uh, for the romance and the just um, that pining and that unresolved tension. I, I just eat that all up. But. Fleabag is so, so much more than that, and it's so brilliant. Um, this is the show created and written by and starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge, based off her one-woman play of the same name. And it's this searing, funny, and just, like, heartbreaking character drama about a woman who is kind of on the edge, is the best way I can describe it. She, um, in the first season, you find out that she loses her best friend in um, what is has been categorized as a suicide attempt, but she calls an accident. And uh, it's kind of her, like, dealing with, you know, that grief and her mom's death from cancer while just kind of acting out by being very sexually promiscuous and trying to find some sort of meaning and connection in life and in sex and, um, you know, not really finding that in any way. Uh, it's but it's hilarious and uh, painfully so. A lot of this film, this show, show is told through um, a lot of fourth wall breaks. So this is something I didn't actually know until I uh, got further into like finding out about the show. But Phoebe Waller Bridge's character, Fleabag, um, it's very much in her perspective. She will constantly just 
break the fourth wall and talk to the audience with little like funny asides sometimes explanations but mostly just like little glances or, or glimpses kind of akin to Jim from the office doing his wry you know side eyes and it's a way of kind of bringing the audience into this story and making you feel like she's your friend and that you're along with the ride for her but also giving insight into her self-destructive spirals and it's really fascinating the way that it does it's just like one of the most well-written shows I've ever seen honestly it's really good it's so good yeah. and Steve Waller-Bridge I mean she's just brilliant yes but like we should we should specify the thirst real quick. I I need everyone to know. Yes. <laughs> the thirst that ate, that made HD watch this is Andrew Scott as a hot priest. And he's not known as any other name. He's just known as the hot priest, which is right. what I love. Um only like three characters in this show actually have names. Uh that's Fleabag, her sister Claire, and then Claire's um husband Andrew, I think. Or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but everyone else is known as like there's Olivia Coleman as Godmother, who, by the way, is perfectly cast. She is so good. Olivia Coleman is. I love her. She's the best. Like, thank God she got an Oscar. Yes. Like, I love her she so much. All the awards and all the acclaim. She really does. But, like, everyone is just so perfectly cast in this series. Um, what was I saying? But yes, <laughs> Andrew Scott as the hot priest. Oh, my God. God, I was never really attracted to Andrew Scott beforehand. <laughs> um, I, I saw him as Moriarty in Sherlock. He was good in the role, but I couldn't really find myself to be attracted to him because he plays creepy so well. Well, he plays just like disheveled, um, sweary, hot, cool, um, self-hating. Sweary, priest. he's a priest. Yeah, he's a priest. <laughs> okay, but like he's also sexy. He's a sexy priest. He's just like just he's the right amount of disheveled and self-hating that – it feeds into like my every love and need for a character, <laughs> and the way and his and Phoebe Waller Bridge's chemistry is just off the charts. Like they, it's something that is just like I can't even talk about it because it's so good. It they like their bodies are just kind of like drawn to each other. Like they feel like it feels like their physical connection transcends anything that happens. Anyways, they're just really good together, and it's just um. I had like good words for this before I started talking and now I can't talk anymore because that chemistry is just so palpable and so it's, good. It's just it's, um, it's, it's overwhelming HD. It's overwhelming me. And you know I love me a good rom com. I love me some good lust and some good pining. I mean, half of the reason I loved Victoria so much was because um uh I can't remember his name now because I feel really bad about it. The pining from uh uh what's his name? Who played the Prime Ow. Minister. Uh, series. I'm looking this up. Okay. Are you talking about the one with Jenna Coleman? Yes, the one with Jenna Coleman. Victoria. And uh, it was. Oh, Victoria. Yeah, Victoria. Uh, no, it's called Victoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, between her and Lord M with Rufus yeah, Sewell. Lord M. Yes, yes, yes. Who? Oh, yes, Rufus, Rufus Sewell. Sewell. Rufus Sewell. The the Rufus tension between Victoria that. and Lord M did was I, a lot. Did I tell you how I tweeted about Lord M's pining? Like Rufus Sewell is just particularly spectacular way of just staring like he will give the world and die for her uh, i tweeted about it and rufus sewell liked it he liked my tweet. Yeah. he liked my thirst tweets which i found found hilarious 
that's amazing. I will say um, Victoria also, because, like, I remember watching the first season of Victoria, and I shipped Victoria and Lorna, like, so hard. And yeah. I was like, no, like, I know she marries Albert. Like, I hate this. Like, no. But then she and Albert also became perfect. And I, I mean, was like, Albert wow. Albert is I Darcy, so I can see why you love him. He's like – I mean, Albert perfect. is – He's like he's like the he's the openly nerdier version of Darcy. Yes, because he's just like he loves trains. He just so really much. loves trains. He's very excited. He really about loves trains. trains. It's really cute. Anyways, um, Fleabag is amazing. It's on streaming on Amazon Prime right now. It's only two seasons long. God, I just I'm just thinking about that season two ending, and like how it's the ending of the series. And I read this really great piece in Vulture about um, that's called Fleabag breaks the fourth wall and breaks our hearts. And it just talks about how our relationship with Fleabag is as much a part of the show as like all her relationships in the series. And the way that that final scene when she like gives us one last look is her breaking up with us. A spoiler is um really good. My God. Oh yeah. gosh. Uh, so yeah. good. <laughs> um, yeah. Hey guys, what? We have to go back. <gasps> I've been watching Lost. Yeah. Have you been angry at everyone comparing the Game of Thrones finale to the Lost finale because they're wrong? That's My the only thing. reaction so, to that okay. is I hope that people go back to the Lost finale and realize how good it is. How good so it this is. is! This is what is happening. So there's a podcast called Storm of Spoilers who that has been doing a Game of Thrones podcast. It's pro- it was a- it was a Game of Thrones podcast. And it has now transitioned into a Lost Rewatch podcast. Um, and uh, I started listening to it, watching, like, they watched the pilots, parts one and two. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this week to week because I'm such a binger when it comes to TV. So I am now uh, uh, in the beginning of season two. And it's been a week since I restarted my Lost Rewatch. Um, and I was tweeting about this with Anya. I haven't rewatched Lost ever um except for i think i started i tried i tried to rewatch a couple years ago i only got to walk about and then i fell asleep and then i didn't keep going but that's nothing on lost it was just sort of like i had watched like four episodes in one night and then it was midnight and then i like was like i woke up and netflix was like a year on episode eight and i'm like i don't even know where i fell asleep at so i sort of like didn't do a lost rewatch a couple years ago but yeah, this is the first time I'm re-watching Lost ever. And what I'm finding is that th- these episodes of, of TV that I only watched once when they aired in 2004 left such a deep impression on me that I remember, like, everything. Like, when it, when, like, when it happens, I'm like, like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, Shannon and Saeed fall in love. And, you know, the numbers show up. Um, and, you know, Hurley is, you know, the big huggable bear that everybody loves, um, and Walt, and Walt, um, and Charlie, oh, and, like, all these great characters, <laughs> and uh, Vincent is the goodest boy, and there's so many great, like, moments of the show, and I just, now that I'm an, like, adult, and I've taken film classes, and I, like, know how to, like, analyze things, I've gone back to watching a show I watched when I was in seventh grade, and I'm seeing just how perfect Lost was as a television show, at least you know when it started out. Um, and you know the like the like how the flashbacks inform the audience of what who these characters are without having the the characters to outright say, "I'm Kate, I was a fugitive," like or, "I'm Jack, I'm a doctor," even though it does say that. But like you get all these you know moments of 
of characterization and humanization behind uh, what's happening on the action on the island. And, and yeah, like we we talked about Lost in our Lost episode, which you can not, not a Lost episode, but a Lost episode, um, <laughs> where you can go back and and listen to us talk about Lost, uh, listen Lost, Lost listen. Ooh, that's a listen cast, uh, Lost Ooh. cast. Um, <laughs> There's so many um, great moments in this show, especially in the first season and a half that I've watched, uh, that I that I realized that it's just so in, like it left such an impression on me, uh, and I really am excited to uh, get back to uh, get back to the island um, and uh, like finally d- dive into the mythology part of the show. Like that was always a, what I liked about the show, but. Um, because I never did like the rewatch or like before a new season, like go back and watch the first season because I didn't, I didn't have the DVDs. So by the time we got to like season four and they were like referencing the polar bear, like I had completely forgotten when the polar bear showed up. It happens in the in part two of the of the pilot. Yeah. So like there's so many things uh-huh. that I yeah. remembered but then don't remember it specifically. So going back and watching Lost like this is such a, a, a treat and a joy and a treasure that I can't wait to rewatch the finale because as we all know here... In this house, we love and stand the lost finale. We um, do. <laughs> I like that we said that in unison. That was I actually very good. We are all done, on the same wavelength here. Yeah, I actually haven't done a full rewatch of Lost. I think I did a rewatch uh, a couple years ago of like the first two seasons, and then I just like never got around to finishing it. And of course, I rewatch the constant every year because it's my constant Christmas episode. Oh. <laughs> I love crying, um, but uh, I. Cool. I do miss Lost a lot. I really feel like I could get a lot of the same things that you're getting out of it now by doing a rewatch from a new perspective and from a binging perspective too because it it was one of the few shows, um, the last shows that I watched week to week and I I still haven't had an experience with a show like Lost in which it left me with such a sense of elation and um, at the end of every episode – where I don't know what's happening next. I don't know where the show is going to go. And I couldn't wait to find out. And I miss that feeling. I've st- been trying to recapture it ever since, but it's never been quite the same. I remember Game of Thrones at you first. You just have to feeling. go back. Yeah. Just have to go back. You have to go back. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to, like like HC was saying, like binging it uh, is going to be so helpful because I will be able to like follow along cl- more closely. Like, the first time Hurley shows up in the background of um, a Sun and Jin flashback with him, like, you know, when the when the news was announced that he won the lottery, like you could just see Hurley on the background with like Korean subtitles and like in the on the Chiron on the, on the like the news broadcast, yeah. and it's things like that and like all the connections and everything. Like the show is so good at being a television show and being like you know because of the because the flashbacks um, are you know one character per episode or it's it's not a it's not a 73 hour movie it is wholly a television show with a beginning middle and end on each episode and that's what i love about it where it can be a singular it's this it's this transition period between um episodic television as we know it and serialized television as we know it where there are moments where they have to sort of recap the events of the previous episode not just on the previously on lost but also like characters saying what they you know uh, what they did just done in the episode before whereas now, now you probably wouldn't get those lines of dialogue because you just assume that everyone binged it the entire time um so 
I'm excited to see how they transition into being like a show steeped in mythology where like the previously ons are going to be like two minutes long and just the, the really fascinating ways they dive deep into the island's history um, and being able to follow along with that as bin- in binging it and sort of like I have to take notes. I'll take notes, but I want to. I want to understand exactly what you know the, the mysteries of the island. I am so in it to uh, unlock Lost. Um, yeah, no. That, if we were doing a normal episode, that would be my really like. Um, yeah, this is just a whole Lost. episode of really likes, guys, and some really dislikes because we had a whole rant really about Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, okay. we did. <laughs> I do want to. We'll, we'll add... probably shut up about because they're not going to be making Game of Thrones anymore. Yeah, finally. I do. I do want to say. I'm going to shoot some more shit and also say something that I've been talking about for the past couple months, years. I don't oh know. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm doing another Doctor Who rewatch. Yes. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. When did this happen? <laughs> Not a whole rewatch. I've just been rewatching the Peter Capaldi um, era because. Okay. Okay. I don't know. I felt. That's I doable. suddenly felt. Um, the impulse arise in which I was like, I feel like rewatching Peter Capaldi because he actually, my hot take is the best new who doctor. And I've Ooh, come to that realization. Wow. Wait, he is objectively take. the best. Because, you were so in it for Matt Smith. I mean, like Matt Smith is still my personal favorite, but Peter Capaldi, all the nuance and emotional nuance he embodies every aspect of the doctor that he is able to bring into his performance makes him the best doctor and of course i talked about this before his arc his arc is so good it from being that um anti-hero to being the kindest doctor of them all makes me cry and tearing up again oh but yeah i just gotta say he he really has that both the journey and just like the depth that makes him the best doctor because i was okay so this is stemmed from me um wanted to get a new doctor who tattoo um and i was just watching some doctor who clips and i started watching some classic clips and as i was watching classic clips with my my rewatch of my favorite doctor who clips i was realizing that a lot of peter capaldi's performance is so steeped in that history of doctor who and he has so many um not just callbacks but like ticks I guess or like qualities that recall a lot of the classic doctors and he does it in a way that's really subtle but and yet so impressive so that's why I've come to that conclusion I can go into a, a whole essay about this but um this is my very basic just rant about Peter Caldy being, being the best doctor and also I was re-watching his best episode recently Heaven Sent which is the uh, penultimate episode of season nine and um, I was uh, rethinking my Doctor Who episode ranking article that I wrote for SlashFilm.com. I put Blink as number one and Heaven Sent as number two. And I was watching Heaven Sent again and wondering if I had gotten this wrong. And I should have put Heaven Sent as number one. But I have now come to the conclusion that Blink is the best TV episode of Doctor Who. Heaven Sent is the best Doctor Who episode. Let me tell you why. Interesting. Yes, I think I, I think I, I think I can see your reasoning behind the, yes. the, the different Blink choices. Works best as just a good episode of television, the beginning, middle, of yeah. end. It works as a way to introduce people into this universe and the story, um, without having to be so embedded in like the mythology and everything. And it 
operates on, honestly more as like almost like a Twilight Zone episode with the Doctor in it. Um, but it is a, such a good episode of television and the way that it builds this mystery and it has you empathize with all the characters and feel their loss when um, all of like the shit goes down. Meanwhile, Heaven Sent is just like the pinnacle of Doctor Who. It's this hour-long meditation on grief just delivered through basically one long monologue by Peter Capaldi. He's the only real actor. He's only the he's like basically the only actor who appears on screen during this entire episode, uh, with the exception of uh, Jenna Coleman as Clara for like one line and then her back for a lot of the other um, scenes. Oh my god! I, it's, it's like I want you to get through the Peter Capaldi episodes, um, Anya, because I want to talk to you about this one episode in I... particular. It is it's so good, and I just like Peter Capaldi's performance in this is just like award-worthy, mind-blowingly good. There's this one episode where, one moment where he has like this realization of like years and, that's years and years in the making that, you know, he gets implied by and um, you you see it all just like happen on his face and um, the way that it gets delivered and the way that just like slowly dawns on him is just breathtaking. And the writing is amazing. It's like, Stephen Moffat, you know, has his issues, but when he is able to deliver just like a strong taut bottle episode like this, and he does it so well, and um, yeah, it's something that I feel like is just the epitome of everything Doctor Who, and uh, I can't go into it more without spoiling it, but it it is about the resilience of of Will. I won't say human Will because he's not human, but it feels like he is utterly human in this, in that he is just. You know that um, what's that Greek myth of the uh, of the man rolling the boulder up the hill again? Uh, oh, um, Sisyphus. Sisyphus. Uh, Sisyphus. It's yeah. the most Sisyphean episode, and um, I just I'm gonna watch it again. <laughs> it's so good. I know I've been meaning. I mean, definitely Peter Capaldi seasons are definitely like on my like. I really want to watch those because I feel like I'm gonna love him. Um, because I I feel like with nine being my favorite new kind of sort of predisposed to like Peter Capaldi because mm-hmm. I feel like from what I've heard they both have kind of like that gruff starting out and then they become like big old softies mm-hmm. and you love them and their gooey centers by the end um and so yeah no I'm definitely I really want to watch Peter Capaldi and he's such a great actor um and I also know that I'm gonna ship him and Clara because that's who I am as a person I honestly okay Upon my rewatch, <laughs> I will say um, I really love the Capaldi, the Peter Capaldi, um, the Twelve and Clara dynamic. And yeah. my big take on it is that I, what I love the most about the relationship is that it is a testament to the all-consuming power of non-romantic love. It can be romantic. It's almost oh, as yeah. strong, maybe even stronger than romantic, but their love is so strong that it transcends any notion of like romance and sex. It's something that's like just so powerful and like raw and something that is just anyways i really love doctor who guys i don't know if you know this i've been thinking about this hey i'm gonna make a joke um, i'm sorry oh no no i I just i just want to say um i want to make a joke about heaven sent yeah um it's the it it gives an answer of how many takes does it take how many licks does it take to get to the center which is your old pop it really does if that's it really doesn't do that 
Um, and also, um, it's of course centered around a grim fairy tale, which is like my shit. Um, what was yes. it? But yeah, I've been like obsessively back on the Doctor Who train as always, and all I've been doing as is just always. messaging poor Mike Sillingle about this because I'm n- I don't want to tweet about it all the time and be that annoying person. So I've just been messaging him, and he's been very confused because he's never seen a single episode. I hope he never watches Doctor Who because I'm <laughs> confused at your te- at your texts. Yeah, they're like at two a.m. and I'm like, Mike, Peter Capaldi is the best Doctor Who a- actor. Also, Heaven Sent is the best episode of Doctor Who in the Doctor Who sense, and here's why. And I give him like a TED talk about it. Yes. <laughs> in this essay, I will, comma. Really, truly. I love it. I yeah, I need to watch it real bad. Um. There's just, there's so much to watch, you guys. Yeah, it's like very, it's very overwhelming. overwhelming. I am. I have a lot of feelings and I'm happy we have a podcast in which I can just get them all out and not have to worry yes. about sounding smart because I just go a big primal scream at my microphone. Basically, we're not here for the, ele- we're not here for the elephants, folks. Mm-hmm. We are, we're kind of like elephants. We're also not here for elephants, but also not elephants. <laughs> Wait, did you not say elephant? Are we here for the elephants? I'm also here for the elephants. I was, I was promised elephants. Like Cersei. Oh, this is awkward. Um, also, Dumbo. Have any of us seen Dumbo? Uh, yeah, haven't. that little delphin is so freaking cute. Oh, that's right. You have seen Dumbo. I can't wait to watch it on digital HD. Dumbo <laughs> is such, it's such a Theaters. like it's such like an okay film, but like, right. man, that elephant. He's so flipping cute. It's like how Aladdin is just such an okay film. The most aggressively say, do mediocre. Do we want to talk about Aladdin? Because we've all seen Aladdin. You know what? Aladdin? You know what? The one thing that Aladdin has going for it, for me, is its cast. Because, like, honestly, I love seeing Will Smith have fun. Like, you can just tell that Will Smith loved making this film. And that just makes me happy. Like he's seeing Will fun Smith when he's happy. not regurgitating the Robin Williams lines because I felt very yes. awkward during those moments. But yeah, well, I feel, like, I feel like when he's doing his best pitch, then it's fun. That was always going to happen, no matter what. Like no matter who you cast, no matter how they did it, like the Robin Williams bits were always going to be kind of like it's such a thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But I will say, like Mina Saud and Naomi Scott were really cute. They were cute. Like they were like this they movie chemistry. Just, they were great. And Naomi Scott even sold that terrible Pacey and Paul song, which is so oh, bad. Can we talk so, about that? Can oh, we talk about that? Can we? I mean, I always want to talk about how much I hate Pacey and Paul. So. I just about how terrible hate. the musical sequences were because they were incredibly lethargic and sluggish and weird, despite and like the choreography was awful too. It felt it sounded looked like they all had just learned the choreography on that day, and uh, it wasn't that. Yeah. It wasn't just that. They sped up the film mm-hmm. in this weird, like, 16 weird moments. They, like, they really sped it up, the and then they, they did the slow-mo, which was so odd to me. I, which I, I, I it's like a Guy Ritchie thing, but it doesn't re- translate to music. Mm-mm. Well, and, like, I'm okay with the slow-mo, because I'm, like, used to it from Guy Ritchie, but, like, I thought the sped-up moments just looked really weird, yeah. and it looked like they yeah. almost, like, it... it looked like they had, like, didn't realize, like, they accidentally pressed a button to speed it up. <laughs> like... Because it didn't actually, like, make any sense or, like, it didn't, it, like, they didn't make it um, feel natural in the film. It just felt you know so what it was. You know what it was? So, 
I once watched because this is who I am the behind the scenes of Weird Al's um, music video for uh, oh, um, every uh, the one where he's like white rapping. Uh, what's it called? Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but he's like he's like doing a rap, and I I watched the behind the scenes version of it, and this is probably what they do in on rap music videos all the time where. They will slow down, right. or at least for for Will uh, for Weird Al, they slowed down the actual song on set so he can lip sync to it normal speed and him not mess up. Uh, and what it looks and you know you really can't tell because like he's moving his mouth so fast, you just assume that's accurate. But when you do that for body movement, it gets so weird. Which is what I think happened. Which is they probably had a slowed down version of uh the songs uh play on set so that way they can get the uh, choreography correct um uh and then when they they when they realized that they had to do it normal speed it looked real real bad which i mean i think it was a conscious choice that they did that because they probably were like let's cut some cost down on like training and choreography but it just looks real bad and will smith is does not He's he he has done plenty of music videos. He has done he was a musical music artist for most of the '90s and mid 2000s, and yet I don't think he's done a lot since. And the choreography he did have was not great. Yeah, and so I that combination even, of him even being Will rusty, Smith's charisma can't like, sell this, then you know it's bad. Like he was okay as a singer on the songs that he had, but him trying to do the choreography, especially in Prince Ali did not look good like they released a clip of it and everyone was like is this what's in the movie and then it was and it was awkward um i also i want to talk about the pacing and paul song because uh, for the for the it's the only new song in the music musical in the movie i guess and you could fundamentally tell that it is not an alan menken song like alan menken did all the songs aladdin Sorry? It's very poppy. Which is it's very poppy. It's, it's very Dear Evan hansen It's very much a Greatest Showman song. It is very much not Aladdin. It is, a, it is an, I think, taken outside of the movie. Like, if you listen to Naomi Scott sing it, you'd be like, oh, this is fine. This is, like, a good, like, po- like empowered song about, you know, speaking up for what you believe in and, like, you know, not staying silent. But then when you put it in the movie where you have these a whole new world. It's a ballad, obviously, but it, it fundamentally fundamentally goes with one jump ahead and Prince Ali, um, and there's one a uh, friend like me. Like these, those four songs feel like they feel cohesive. They are all part of one movie. Like you can fundamentally see the through line between one jump ahead, uh, friend like me, Prince Ali, and a whole new world. But when you throw Speechless in and divide it up into two parts, it throws off the rhythm of the movie, which is ironic considering it's music. It throws off this weird moment where Jasmine is being taken away. Spoiler alert. I mean, it's Aladdin. It has the fundamentally same. It's when Jafar takes over um, and she is taken away by guards and the movie stops and she just starts singing in like like the like literally like everything around her is frozen. It's this like you know very surreal, hyper realistic version of a, of, a, of music of the musical where she's singing the the part two of her song, Speechless, and it just seems so 
forced I want to yeah, say it, it, it no you're completely right like that's what I said I was like it just doesn't feel cohesive with the rest of the music in the movie like it it Pasek and Paul did not even like try to make it fit with like the music that Alan Menken Howard Ashman and Tim Rice created and they just like put they, their own they like the other ones because I only knew Alan Menken Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, they like wanted to just put their own like poppy Broadway like I want song into it, and it did not They're fit awesome. at all. Oh. Also, "Speechless" is a terrible title for a song. But the one thing I was gonna say is that as terrible as the song is, like I will say, Naomi Scott like sold the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. Like she oh, yeah. she saved that moment and that song by like just giving it a hundred and ten percent. I will say, I one thing I did like about the movie is that it gave Jasmine a much more believable and compelling arc than she had in the original Thank animated God. film. And yeah. I will say, as much as I love the animated movie and like it holds a special place in it, my heart, it does have a lot of problems with Orientalism. And I mean, okay, just, yeah. like, the exoticizing of Arab culture, but also just like the whitewashing of it at the same time. Yeah. And like the way that it eroticizes uh and sexualizes, for example, Jasmine's character, like in the end. But and, so, like, you here they give her Jasmine? something that makes more, much more sense with her character because in the animated film, you see that she's like, you know, a spitfire. She's like not a prize to be won, but then that really never pays off because she does kind of become a prize to be won. And here, you know, she, in spoilers, becomes a sultan, and that makes much more sense. Agreed. And um, for her character, and I, I really, I did enjoy that. I will, like, uh, this new Aladdin doesn't solve everything in terms of like the orientalism of this film. Not at all. Um, yes, and like you know, I have the ugh, just issues with Disney live action remakes in general. Um, I think that trying to do photorealistic de- depictions of something that was meant to be heightened in the first place and something that was meant to be very stylized, there's no way that you can do it justice. And um, Aladdin, especially something that's I- so weird and based in like um the animator is basically just uh um going off of robin williams on improv performances was is like something that doesn't really suit going to live action unless like maybe if you made it a big an actual bollywood production and with directors who know how to direct a musical sequence maybe that would have been fine that's okay that this is a little pushback of what Mm. you're saying i think that you can do a live action remake of an animated movie if you if you do it full assed instead of half assed, because I feel like they tried whole to have their cake one in, thing. whole ass one thing, never half assed two things, whole ass one thing. I think they tried to have their cake and eat it too by doing like the Robin Williams lines of dialogue, like they, you know, like a, a lot of what um, a lot of the non Robin Williams lines are altered to make it look, you know, like they had to fill out an extra half hour of of dialogue, you know, of like, you know, a movie. So they gave Jasmine a great, uh, a, a great new like yeah. arc for well, herself. Let me clarify. There's a, there's um, a, there's a, no, but, but I, I just want to say like, I think that they can, it could be more stylized. Yeah. It could be well-directed. I think Guy Ritchie, Guy Ritchie is a fundamentally missed, like, like he should not have been the director of the film because I think that there is a way of doing like, I, I think I, I keep going back to the fact that, they have successfully produced Broadway musicals of these stories that have were animated films and people, and they're beloved by everybody. So it's doable to do a live action version. But I think that like when it comes to the medium of film, they are trying too hard to stick to 
what they did in the in the yeah. in the original films, and it doesn't translate to the live action. But what they have to do is they have to take the story that they they took uh, that they have and make it fit to the live action version of the story that they're telling, and not just have Aladdin. I mean, like Aladdin does parkour in the animated movie, so it's it makes sense for him to still do it because he's Aladdin. He's a parkour madman. Um, but there's a lot of what Robin Williams was do, uh, what Will Smith was doing. That is literally just carbon copy. Yeah, uh, Will that, Smith. That's actually what uh, I Robin, meant. Is... Carbon copy, Robin yeah. Williams. Yeah, that's actually what I meant. When they are rehashing and just retreading what the animated film does, there it doesn't live up to what the animated film does because it's a different medium. You have to do something different. Which and is why, the like, movie is like, best look. when it's like Guy Ritchie just kind of leaning into his Guy Ritchie-ness and doing like you know Hitch, his version of Hitch, essentially, or doing just like the the, the man from Uncle Shopping scene. Like those are fun. Those are a completely different movie, but it's fun. And I would rather see that movie versus just a tired rehash of Aladdin in a less visually dazzling way. Right, exactly. I agree. That's why Maleficent works so well Mm -hmm. as, like, a feminist, like, revenge retelling. Um, And I actually think, like, uh, I I actually agree with Willoughby that you can do the stylized recreation because I think Jungle Book is still stunning and beautiful and I think does justice to the animated movie. Um, <clears throat> and, but yeah, I feel like if you're going to do something, you have, that's why like movies like Maleficent and Pete's Dragon are so good, but like not enough people understood what they were doing or saw them because they were actually the different live action remakes. They weren't like these half-assed, like Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, like, because like, and I think it's also harder when you're doing their Renaissance films because mm-hmm. Disney is so protective of them. And it's like, then don't touch these, then don't, remake these ones because like the ones that have worked best are like Maleficent, Peace Dragon, Cinderella, none of which come from Renaissance films. Like yes, Cinderella is beloved in the classic, but the original animated movie was so bare bones that like any sort of expansion on it yeah. was gonna don't be have different. As like strong of a memory of as of those films either. Yeah. So I'm like I'm like, yeah, remake. Like, I'm actually looking forward to the Lady in the Tramp movie because I'm like Janelle Monae and Tessa Thompson. And like, I'm like curious to see what they're going to do with it because, again, it's not like it's one of my favorite films, but like, it's not like the Renaissance era. It's, you know, they can do something different with it because people don't remember it as well. Like, they remember certain bits and like, you know, they're going to change it up. So it's like Disney is able to do these live action remakes successfully, but they have to again, whole ass one thing. Mm-hmm. And with the Renaissance films, they can't do that because they hold back so much because they're like, so like, no, you can't change this bit or this bit. You have to like, they're so protective. And I'm like, that's why it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they go far enough to all to, 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 to do, do something different than what the Renaissance films and are it's doing. Like, we know like we talked about this with Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we know, I mean, in Maleficent, she is literally like drugged and assaulted. Yeah. Like that is the like turning point for her character. So like, I, I'm like, Disney, I know you are willing to make these choices and that you can do that and that you can let like writers and directors like tell new stories. But again, maybe they just won't with the Renaissance films and maybe that's why they should just, but they're easy cash grabs, I yeah. guess. Alan so, is going to make a lot of money this weekend. And yeah. I'm sad to say I did, contribute to that because I was gonna I went to see it with my AMC A-list on Thursday so, I mean same oh, I yeah yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean same it's uh, the three of us seeing it is not gonna like 
change the fact that I'm just going to make a lot of money. So, but yeah, so I mean, although if everybody story, thinks that that's a problem, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's very true. Um, moral of the story, as we've said many times before, like Disney has some very amazing capabilities. They just don't always hone in on them or yeah. check yeah, out our they don't previous always... podcast episodes about Disney and, uh, the remake problem. We, have, we have. We've had a quite a journey with this. Haven't we have we? many. <laughs> we have a lot of feelings about well, the, the thing is that Disney we and... started talking about the we started talking about these Disney remakes when like there was only Maleficent and Cinderella and Jungle Book, and now they've you know released so many more and are continuing to release more. That this is an ongoing topic. And like uh, this is going to be like like something we go back to. I feel like, and it's kind of a case of diminishing returns since then too. Yeah, yeah. I, really I don't think Aladdin's going to make a billion dollars. No, 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 no. And I love that we just don't talk about Tim Burton's awesome Wonderland movies because they're awful. They're really bad. They are terrible. Um, well, guys, I think we've touched on a lot of different topics today. I've loved just kind of shooting the shit with you guys. Yeah, we um, did it and, went, and we're legends. How, we, are, we are always legends. Yes, we are. Um, how do we, how are we ending this episode? Um, ooh. Uh, uh, mm, mm, uh, 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 what How about is... this? We, we, we said things that we really like, so we're just going to wrap up. Um, if you guys want to come talk to us about anything, where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're also on Twitter uh, at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe and listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. And uh, stay tuned next week for our Pokemon episode, most likely. Let's, let's all pray that we're going to get that uh, gonna get that going. Um, and then uh, where can they find you guys on the internet? You can find me at HTranBooey sla- <laughs> 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 on Twitter. You can also find her great writing at Flash Film. Yes, so that's there true. you go. Um, and you can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.